0: You know, this is hard to imagine, but there is enough concrete at that nuclear plant to pave a sidewalk from Georgia to Seattle, a sidewalk. And that that is a long way. And that just shows you how deep in the ground this project is, how high it is, how thick it is. I mean, it was, you know, it was designed to withstand a strike from a 767 jet airliner, uh, you know, crashing directly into it. One,
1: two, three, four. Welcome to the Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and on the show today, we're going to learn about the first newly constructed nuclear unit to be built in the United States in more than 30 years. In this episode, we will journey through the nucleus of energy exploration, centering on the Pivotal Plant Vogel Project in Georgia. We look into the role of Georgia Public Service Commissioners, and we navigate the intricate world of nuclear energy, comparing its efficiency and impact against other renewable energy sources. From Vogel's historical significance to the challenges facing its construction, we explore the nuances of this ambitious endeavor. Join us in contemplating the future of nuclear energy, considering lessons from Vogel and examining the promise of modular reactors and their global impact. It's a deep dive into the past, present, and potential of nuclear power on this edition of The Green Hour. Imagine a construction project that used enough concrete to stretch a 3,375-mile sidewalk from Miami to Seattle, used enough steel to construct 25,000 cars, used 100 plus miles of water piping and had towers that stood 60 stories high. Pretty mind-blowing, right? This project wasn't a fantasy, it was real. And it was Plant Vogel Units 3 and 4, a 30 plus billion dollar nuclear project in the state of Georgia. Plant Vogel Units 3 and 4 are the first newly constructed nuclear units to be built in the United States in more than 30 years. Georgia Power reports that Vogel Unit 3 can power an estimated 500,000 homes and businesses. Joining us on the Green Hour is someone who was very involved in the Plant Vogel project. Tim Eccles is a Georgia Public Service Commissioner, and he authored the December 2017 motion to keep Plant Vogel moving forward. He believes carbon-free nuclear energy plus solar is the best way forward for Georgia. He has represented the United States at the World Nuclear Exhibition for the last eight years. And before his time as a commissioner, Tim and his wife, Wendy, founded TeenPAC, a training experience for conservative high school students. The program began at the Georgia Capitol and now operates in all 50 states, having trained 60,000 students. After building TeenPAC, Eccles ran and was elected to statewide office in 2010, serving as public service commissioner. Under his leadership, Georgia rose from 34th to 9th in solar power, and earned him the title of solar architect in Georgia. His initiatives include the Clean Energy Roadshow, advocating for clean transportation, and promoting carbon-free nuclear energy. Tim's commitment extends to philanthropy, combating human sex trafficking, and creating community solar projects, showcasing his leadership in both politics and clean energy. Tim also has a weekly radio show called Energy Matters, airing on Cox Media Group and in four other Georgia media markets. Nuclear energy is a hot topic in today's energy conversations, and Plant Vogel provides a good example of the process it takes to build large-scale nuclear reactors. While it is a blueprint, we know there is a lot to improve, especially considering timelines and costs. But one thing is for certain, nuclear energy is needed if we are going to progress towards a cleaner and more sustainable future. You know, a lot of us are familiar with Chick-fil-A. I myself love Chick-fil-A. I, I think I eat Chick-fil-A way too much. But you have a unique story in your upbringing when you're in high school meeting Truett Cathy um, and how that kind of changed your life. So can you start off by talking about that experience with Truett Cathy and what that meant for you?
0: Yeah, I was just a high school senior. I was 17 and I was president of my student body and had gotten an award from the Atlanta Airport Rotary Club. Went over to had the launch. Everybody's been to a rotary club probably and, um, was making photos by their, um, four way test after the meeting. And this man came up to me and he said, my name is Truett Cathy. Do you have, do you have time to come by my office after this meeting? And I was already skipping school to begin with, right? To get the award. So I was happy to have some more time away. I followed him over, you know, to the Chick-fil-A headquarters, which at the time was just in a little butler building, um, very small, um, very small building. Um, you know, now any, any big Marriott property b- would be way bigger than, than a Chick-fil-A head, uh, headquarters. Um, so he gave me a set of Zig Ziglar tapes, which, uh, entitled see you at the top. And, uh, he said, go and listen to these tapes, become a better leader, go off to college and come back in four years and, And I'll give you a Chick Fil A store. So uh, those tapes really were so instrumental in my leadership style because one of the things that Zig Ziglar says—if he's passed away now—but it's still stuff is still great. One of the things he said was, "If you you can get everything you want in life, if you help enough other people get what they want." And so it really. It, it really put me in an other-focused type of a leadership style, and and that's what I've been doing ever since. Hmm.
1: So going from high school, you, you end up going to the University of Georgia, um, and then you end up, I guess, meeting your wife there. Maybe you met her earlier, maybe you met her in college, but I, what I saw was um, y'all started what's called Teen Pack. I'll be honest with you. I, I didn't even know ab- about Teen Pack until I started doing research. And I'm like, how in the world did I not know about this? The the work that you're doing, you and your wife are doing is, is so incredible. So could you talk to to the listeners about what Teen Pack is and you know how much it's grown since since y'all started this?
0: Yeah, Wendy and I met in college at Georgia. I started Teen Pack um, six years after I graduated. Uh, I wrote the curriculum for it. I really wanted to see Christian high school kids in particular come to state capitals and meet legislators, lobbyists, journalists, write bills, wh- learn how to do all of this. Maybe with the hope that they would be a better citizen, a better voter, uh, maybe get elected or help someone get elected one day. I had no idea that it would spread to every state in America to uh, all 50 states now. I have a permanent place on the board. Fortunately, uh, I don't run day-to-day operations because there's no way I would have time to do that in my job. So um, I just go to the board meetings, help them raise money and, you know, be an ambassador for the program.
1: So going from there and and then we'll get into your job, what you're doing now as vice chairman of the Georgia Public Service Commission could you talk to the listeners and I'm actually very curious as well about what you do on a daily basis and what, what the commissioners do on a daily basis, how many commissioners are there for uh, Georgia public service and you know, what, what do y'all do?
0: Yeah, every state has one of these public utility commissions, public service commissions, um, you know, Georgia elects their commissioners, uh, 10 other states elect, but far and away, most states are uh, a Uh So, The governor would make the appointment uh, in most instances. And these commissioners uh, around the country serve an average of about 4.5 years, um, unless they're from an elected state. And then they serve a lot longer. Uh, I've been on the commission now 13 years. So it really gives you a chance to, to develop some expertise. And it took me two years to figure everything out. I don't see how these guys that are just there for four years really do it. Um, so I love the continuity, the institutional knowledge that, you know, that you can garner from being in office for a long time. We have five commissioners in Georgia and some of them, uh, one of them have, have served even longer than me. Um, we, we used to be the railroad commission as, as most states were before the invention of electricity, before natural gas came along, before telecom came along. So you can really think about these entities as the regulatory body uh, that governs anything on the right of way. Uh, so trains were on the right of way back in the day. Of course, uh, there's not a lot of passenger trains in the South anymore. New England has its share, and out, out west they've got they've got some in California. Uh, but uh, pretty much the federal government took over, you know, trains to Amtrak and. Uh, and there was really no need for state regulation anymore.
1: So it started as, as as this railroad commission, and then it's kind of pivoted now to really looking at energy regulation. And, and from what I research, that's a lot of, of, of what you do and what the other commissioners do. And and I just want to throw one stat out there real quick that I thought was really cool. It says that when, when you took office, Georgia was 34th in the nation in solar. And now the state is ninth uh, in the nation in solar. Um, And this is this is interesting because we met at a solar event at the Candida building at Georgia Tech. And what's also really interesting, um, Tim, I was in New York for the Concordia Annual Summit doing some interviews a few weeks ago. And I interviewed somebody by the name of Yosef Abramowitz, who founded Gigawatt Global. Uh, Mr. Abramowitz co-founded the solar industry in Israel, and then now he's doing the same thing across Africa. And he actually, the first U.S.-based solar field that they did was in Georgia. Yeah, and Georgia now uh, next year will be fourth in the nation.
0: So uh, we we've we've jumped up another five slots. Uh, so uh, and and it's really due to the utility-scale solar that we're deploying. You know, a million panels at a time. We put a big emphasis on utility-scale solar because you can do it without a subsidy, uh, where If you're going to do a lot of rooftop solar, a lot of states have chosen to kind of subsidize it in some ways. And we're a very conservative state. We're we're fairly anti-subsidy. So doing utility-scale solar has been the way to go for us.
1: So solar is one one type of renewable energy. Um, But if we're talking about very efficient, scalable type of energy, we're talking about nuclear, um, something that I I think one nuclear reactor is the same amount of energy as three million solar panels or something like that. But nuclear energy, I I think it is the future. Um, When we look at Georgia, I'm obviously plant Vogel. That's that's big news recently. Um, But this conversation is going to be around nuclear. Um, So. The first thing that I want to talk about and ask you about, um, and this is for the listeners and their understanding, you know, what is what is a nuclear reactor, and you know how does it work? Um, nuclear energy, in, in in particular, if someone is listening right now and they said, "I have no idea what nuclear is," I, I hear about nuclear, um, I, I watch Oppenheimer, but I, I know nothing about a nuclear reactor. Could you explain what what it is? Yeah, and, and let's just clarify that the two Vogel
0: reactors are the equivalent of. Thirteen thousand two hundred acres of solar, um, but that those thirteen thousand two hundred acres would only provide daytime power. So in order, uh, in order to provide that power, you would need to have that you know that much more to you know to fill batteries and uh, and everything else. So because solar uh, is intermittent, it does have you know a limited duty cycle. You know, I, I think. You know, when you think about generating electricity, it's really you're looking at different ways to boil water. Right. So you can you can boil water with coal. You can boil it with natural gas. You can boil it with wood chips or wood pellets. Or you can use uranium uh, and cause a nuclear reactant uh, to boil water uh, and turn a turbine and turn a a generator. So the back end of the plant uh, with the turbine and the and the generator not much different than what you would have at a coal plant uh, or a gas plant. It's just in how you're boiling the
1: water. So I mean, you mentioned you mentioned coal, natural gas. So when looking at nuclear, I mean, what is what is the difference from an environmental footprint perspective on nuclear versus, let's say, coal and natural gas? What we become accustomed to, um, especially uh, in our state.
0: Let's just take a. 300 acre nuclear plant. You, you could have the equivalent amount of energy with coal or natural gas on something that large. Of course, with coal, you've got a lot of ash, um, associated with that. That's going to build up through the years that you're going to have to store. So you may need to build an additional pond. And, you know, when you think about pond and in the South, we think about pond as being something that's about five acres or less. But I mean, the coal ash pond, not too far from where I'm at right now, is 550 acres. So it's a lot of ash and it's very deep. Uh, So you don't have any ash associated with with nuclear energy. Uh, It's extremely condensed, uh, meaning that the amount of fuel that you're having to use, you know, you're, you're not having to bring in three full trains from Wyoming or, uh, or from Appalachia to, you know, every single week in order to make, um, make the energy. In fact, you, you put those rods down into the reactor and they stay there for a year and a half before you have to do anything. So, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty, um, maintenance friendly, uh, when it comes to generating power, Um uh, just a, a little talent. A little tiny pellet, like you would think a, of a, a piece of cattle feed or something. For those of you that, that you know have seen animal feed, um, cow or you know sheep feed or goat feed or whatever, that amount of uranium is equivalent to one ton of coal. So uh, it's extremely condensed. Uh, you know, and coal ash, you know, has its own toxic properties, but nuclear waste does have a half-life of 10,000 years. So it does require some responsible management of the waste. You can recycle it, which I wish we would do in America. We don't, uh, but the French do. The Japanese do. Uh, so it is possible to recycle that waste, not 100%. Like if you recycle glass, you can recycle 100% of it. With nuclear waste, you're recycling about 96% of it, 4% of that waste is going to be, you know, it's going to be so damaged, so contaminated that it really has to be vitrified. In other words, heat it up, mix mix sand with it, turn it into glass, make it inert, and then store it essentially forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, this vitrification is something the French have perfected. It was actually our technology that we gave them. We stopped doing this in the U.S. The French continued, and they really are the masters of nuclear reprocessing.
1: So I I want to stay here for a second because I know nothing about this recycling of nuclear waste. I knew nuclear waste had, like you're saying, a half-life of, of, I think you said 10,000 years. I've, I've heard that stat before. But when you're talking about recycling nuclear waste, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but... You know how does that work? You take the waste and you recycle it down into more energy, or is it waste to energy? I mean, I'm just trying, to, I guess, wrap my head around how yeah. this. So, if you go to France, up
0: in Normandy, where there's a big U.S. cemetery with everybody, you know, that that died on D-Day, um, in in that area, the French have uh, a facility called La Hague, and trucks long trailer trucks with you know uh with with fuel stored in you know stainless steel containers come in with you know with police escort is unloaded and pushed into the pulverizing area they will take those fuel rods they've kind of all melted together after a year and a half so these these zirconium clad uh you know uh uh, storage, you know, basically storage tubes had the uranium in it, but after a year and a half, it's kind of all just mushed together. And they will pulverize that with, you know, with a, like, a, almost like an, like, a light, uh, axe or a saw and get it down not to powder, but, but to a, a very granular uh, type of a, uh, t- you know, type of a uh, substance. And then they will essentially heat it up and distill it into its very various uh, ingredients. So you will have, you will have some pure plutonium that come, that come out of this a little bit, uh, about 4%. You, you've got a lot of, uh, a a lot of what will be light water reactor fuel. uh, that's going to be out of it. And then this mixed oxide fuel uh, and no U.S. reactor burns mixed oxide fuel. We could with two or three million dollars of upgrades at, say, Plant Vogel. Uh, if, if we had the stomach to do it, we we, you know, we don't in America at this point. And then this remaining four percent that I mentioned is contaminated. That's what they're going to vitrify and put sand with and turn it in into glass the -hmm. other component the the mixed oxide and the light water fuel that will become light water fuel um and the plutonium that's going to be stored you know its own individual you know separate containers and uh and then the french take that mixed oxide and they take it down to the southern part of France, to Maylocks, they call it. And I've been to both of these facilities and toured both of them. And the French make these MOX pellets um, that then they create new fuel rods with this these MOX pellets. And they burn those uh, as, as well as the regular light water fuel. And then the plutonium, because the government's kind of involved with all this, they're obviously taking that plutonium and, and storing it in a, in a very safe place and, and taking good care of that, because that's, of course, what you could make a nuclear weapon with, if, mm. you know, uh, you know a- after some work, of course. So uh, that's the process. The French do it every day. Uh, and the plant I went into had a lot of a, a lot of young people about your age working in there. Uh, it wasn't like a bunch of old, French guys. It was a a very, very young workforce. And I think that's what the French have done so well. I mean, even though it's a socialist country, uh, you know, they have they have been able to convince young and old that nuclear energy uh, will keep France from ever becoming subject to anybody else when it comes to energy. And uh, because that's what happened during the oil embargo, France and frankly, America and a lot of countries were brought to their knees with the 1973 Arab oil embargo. And the French, after that, got a motivation in their step, which has never left them.
1: Yeah, I think I read the stat that France is second in nuclear power generation in the world and the U.S. is one. Is that is that correct?
0: Yes. And that's pretty incredible given how small France is compared to America.
1: Right. Well, I, I wanted to talk on, on nuclear waste because I know that's a lot of people's um, hesitancy along with cost and time for nuclear. Um, but you'd mentioned coal ash. And I mean, we're seeing the effects of, of coal ash and um, in, in what that does for, for communities. I spent time, I lived in eastern Kentucky, a lot of coal mines around eastern Kentucky, um, and actually reading into, I think the policy is the Inflation Reduction Act, I think is the policy. I think this is what this is in. They have a, a line item for legacy pollution areas where they're going in and, and trying to clean up um, these these coal ash um, areas. So that's, that's um, good. I, I'm glad to hear that. Um, tr- try to recover that and maybe use it, maybe recycle it. But taking that and then looking at the, the last point I want to make on nuclear before we get into um, Plant Vogel, is with solar and wind, and how they compare to nuclear? I mean, you talked about it briefly in the beginning um, about how many solar panels would be needed to fill the void of just one nuclear reactor, and you also mentioned that you know nuclear is twenty four seven; it's nonstop. The energy always is always going. Solar, you have daytime, you have the sunlight, but but what happens after that? So, can you talk about the efficiency difference between nuclear and then versus these renewables, solar and wind?
0: and I'm not anti-solar and wind. I, I just don't think you can build a grid on it. Um And I mean, certainly there's no fuel cost with solar or wind. Uh You just can't rely on the fuel. I'm not saying you can't rely on God who provides the sun and the wind, but uh it's just impossible to know when it's going to be blowing and shining consistently. So, uh, but I'm all about having a diverse grid. I mean, I want, I want nuclear plus solar. Um, and, uh, you know, if we had, if 15% of our grid was solar, I, I would be happy. Uh, but you know, when you think about efficiency, um, you know, these plants are running 24 seven a year and a half before you have to refuel it. And so that is extremely efficient. Um, and it's carbon free. So if you, if you look at. If you look at these climate goals that are out there that were set during the Paris Accord or the Glasgow meeting that followed, I mean, this UN conference meets regularly on climate. A lot of countries that have been closing fossil plants or wanting to close fossil plants and and, and had closed some nuclear plants, they actually had gone backwards in their climate goals. So you can't, you can't close existing nuclear plants. And Germany, I think, has 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 shown this that as, as, as great a country as they are, as smart as they are, the great engineering minds there that they have had to embrace coal as they've never embraced it before because, uh, shutting down the nuclear plants has really impacted their, uh, their reliability. Uh, and then when you had the, the Ryan, Ryan River, for example, um, it was really not too long ago. Uh, it was really low and they couldn't get the coal barges where they needed to go. And so those coal plants had to cease operation for a little while because they couldn't get the coal there. That really put Germany in, in a difficult place. So German, Germany's got a lot of great wind up in the north uh, and then solar in the south. Uh, but at one time, they had a lot of working nuclear reactors. But after Fukushima, I think they, uh, you know, politically, they just felt they couldn't go any further with it. Uh, and they made a commitment to shut those reactors down. And I, I I, really think there's a lot of people in Germany that regret that now. Hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's three big instances of of nuclear, I guess you'd say, uh, nuclear reactor disaster that people go to when talking about nuclear Fukushima, Three Mile Island, and um, Chernobyl. Um, so, I've spoken on, on past episodes. I think I, I talked to Miss America, Grace Stankey on those three in particular. So, our listeners have a background on that, which is good. Um, so, we don't have to touch on those. But I, I do want to talk about, you know, the U.S. as a leader in nuclear power generation, and something that's really cool inside of our state. Um, so, I'm sitting in Dalton, Georgia, right now, um, which a lot of people know is the Carpet Capital of the World, um, which we we wear it with pride here. Um, But Plant Vogel um, is the first um, newly constructed nuclear units, um, Units 3 and 4, in the U.S. in over 30 years. So as a Georgia citizen, and I've lived in Georgia my whole life, this makes me super excited to see the state of Georgia leading in innovation. Um, So could you talk to the listeners about, you know, what is Plant Vogel? um, What is Unit 3 and 4? And and how how much does this mean to our state? Yeah, kudos, by the way, to Dalton Utilities, because they had set aside a lot of money
0: for plant Vogel ahead of time. So they really weren't having to go to their rate payers as frequently as other utilities were. Uh, so, uh, Dalton utilities, uh, that basically powers the carpet capital of the world really had, a, a, you know, demonstrated great financial, uh, integrity. Uh, so kudos to them. I mean, you know, plant Vogel is, has been an operating nuclear plant since 1987 uh when the first unit went in to uh, in, into commercial service. And then in 89, the second one. And by the way, they they had trouble back then because after Three Mile Island, um, there were a lot of regulatory changes and design modifications that were required. And Georgia, uh, Georgia Power and the co-owners of, of Vogel had to go back in and do a lot of Change orders uh, based on that um, and so uh, the Vogel site was named after Alvin Vogel if anybody's seen the movie by, uh, that, uh, that portrayed the great Escape it's called the Great Escape Steve McQueen was uh, was the you know the star of the show that movie was based on Alvin Vogel mm. uh, who plant Vogel is named after the plant was originally designed for six reactors. Uh, and so two were built. Uh, and then, when Westinghouse came up with this eighty one thousand design, George Power first went to the legislature to get permission for uh a CWIP or construction work in progress and being able to charge the interest upfront on this along as they were building it, so that after it was over, nothing would have compounded. everything all the interest would have been paid, and then came to the commission. Uh, for our permission, and the commission granted permission in 09, about a year and a half before I got there, uh, and and then you know, the project was started, and before even a, any concrete was was poured, Fukushima happened, and a lot of the states that had ordered AP1000 uh, canceled uh, all but Georgia and South Carolina, and so Georgia and South Carolina were both building two reactors on the exact same schedule, uh, so they were really twin, uh, twin plants that were, were, that, were, that were going up at the same time. Uh, and in 2017, when Westinghouse went bankrupt, and they were bankrupted by Toshiba, the parent company, who no longer owns Westinghouse, um, South Carolina decided that they uh, could not continue, uh, and Georgia Um, with my motion in 2017 to go ahead. It passed unanimously and all five of our commissioners agreed uh, to continue with the plant and finish it. Hmm.
1: So I I will say I was talking to my grandfather actually before we got on on the call here. He's he's lived in Dalton um, for, for the last 44 years, I think. And he's told me for years about how electricity prices in Dalton are so much lower um, than those of let's say in the county or, or those let's say um even outside further in georgia and um, I, I never understood why uh, until probably this year and until I knew about plant vogel um, but he he was saying you know how much how much money they've saved just because of plant vogel um and this this clean energy generation it had a, a big impact um, economically you know for Dalton citizens you're talking about Dalton utilities but it also, I think brought, I think the number was 9,000 jobs, construction jobs throughout the construction of Vogel. And then it's going to be 800 full-time jobs for people in that area of Georgia, um, which by the way, what area of Georgia, could you tell the listeners, is Plant Vogel in?
0: Yeah, it's right down the river from the Masters Golf Tournament. Uh, So Augusta National uh, is up the river 20 miles or so. Uh, So it's right on the Georgia-South Carolina line. And if you could throw a baseball that far across the river, you would hit the Savannah River site, the federal facility that DOE runs, which by the way, at one time had five working nuclear reactors on that property. Uh, so, um, you know, that, that facility was very involved with the Cold War the Savannah River site. And there still today, I'm told is a enormous cache of plutonium underground at the Savannah River. Site and they got the helicopter gunships sitting there to protect all of that as well. So it's I think it's 110 square miles. It's very large federal facility with maybe 6,000 people that work there. It's it's substantial. Vogel did have the 9,000 that you mentioned, uh, and they were union craft labor jobs. Uh, so whether that's the the sheet metal guys, IBEW building and trades. Um, and I really believe the union workforce saved the plant. Um, and and, and here, here's why. The union workforce inoculated the plant against Democratic Party criticism, right? Because the union was very important to President Biden during his campaign and to Stacey Abrams the first time she ran for governor in 2018, which was right after. The bankruptcy and her campaign was during the bankruptcy. So had Stacey Abrams lit into the plant and caused, you know, every Democrat in Georgia to hate it, I I think it would would have there would have been such strong public opinion against it. I think there would have been pressure on the commissioners to cancel it like South Carolina did. But because of the union workforce, Democrats did not criticize the plant. And as a result, you know, we were able to finish it pretty much criticism free. Uh, Mm -hmm. Obviously, it went over budget. It's over time. And there are plenty of naysayers out there. But for the most part, public opinion has stayed strong on finishing Plant Mogul.
1: So, So you talked about, you know, budget overruns, time overruns. Um, and I think a lot of people w- will want to tune into this, um, conversation to hear your thoughts on, you know, what, what really happened with these delays and this budget overruns. Um, so could you get into, um, what, what happened, um, with, with both of these things and why did Vogel take so much longer to build? And then why did it cost so much more, more money than was previously, um, budgeted for? Yeah.
0: I mean, if, you know, these AirPods right here, if I asked you to make me a hundred thousand of these, uh, the you know, the, the scale, that scale is going to allow you to make these a lot cheaper, uh, than if, than if I said, I just want one of these <laughs> custom built. And that's what wound up happening. Not that there was a hundred thousand orders for nuclear plants, but if you had 20 being, you know, looked at in the order book, you know, from states and then it boiled down to just two, uh, it really, it, it, it really became, uh, just an albatross around the neck of Toshiba and Westinghouse. And they were bleeding cash. Toshiba had already written down $5 billion on the two projects before the bankruptcy. And so, you know, there were all kinds of issues with welding, uh, the modules. This was modular construction. I mean, these modules are huge. They're seven stories high, but, um, but the, you know, they were supposed to come in uh you know, welded properly um and, and, and they did not, that threw the plan off for a couple of years uh and the interest burn on this project alone was two million dollars a day. Oh. That's how much interest our ratepayers were paying. So it was it was a very costly delay because of these modules. I mean, yeah, we had some other issues. You had the pandemic, yeah, how about the pandemic, you know, in the middle of the project and everybody out there wearing masks and trying to be tested daily and, uh, and, and, all the problems surrounding, uh, that, uh, the, you know, when Westinghouse went bankrupt, the contractors that were out there were owed about a half a billion dollars. So imagine you're a contractor out there doing welding or, you know, whatever. And the company you're working for goes bankrupt. And now, you know, you've got payments on this equipment. You know, you've got, you know, family to feed. You got a workforce and Georgia Power with the commission permission stepped in and paid all of those back invoices mm. um, and kept the gate open of the to the plant. And you know, that was, I think a critical moment. You know, uh, as well, that, you know, had Georgia Power not done that, we would have lost a lot of that institutional knowledge uh, and and the workforce. who said, you know what, I'm not I'm not doing this. I'm not working for free. I'm not I'm not working for a loss. And so. It was important, you know, that Georgia Power do that. I can't say enough about the courage of the Southern Company. You know, to finish this, because when the bankruptcy happened, if they had told us, let's just throw in the towel, I think the commissioners would have, would have done it. Because if the utility, if the utility doesn't have the heart to do it, you know, we, we you know, it, it, it would be even more of a risk. But the fact that the Southern company against all odds were willing to move forward with no one else in America uh, at their side. Uh, that says a lot. That says a lot about the character of that company, their executive team. And they're not perfect, of course. And, uh, you know, I've certainly voted against them on plenty of things. But, you know, in this particular instance, you know, they exhibited great courage. And were it not for them doing that, we also couldn't have finished it. So So many heroes, you know, that deserve credit for, You know, for finishing uh, this, and it's something that really all of America can be proud of. Hmm.
1: Yeah, a lot of people don't understand um, just not only the impact of Vogel, but the size of of Vogel. I'm just just how big it is. I mean, I I think when when I was listening to um, a podcast with you in the past, um, you had mentioned and said that Vogel was basically 100 projects going on simultaneously. And think about. 100 different projects at one time going on. And they're very complex. And not to mention that Vogel is the first of its kind in the US. I think China had China had um, actually done the AP1000 um, generators before, but in the US, we'd never done this. So this is from scratch. Um, we're, we're learning as we go. Um, so whenever you're doing a huge innovation like that, you're going to have some bumps in the road. So a lot of people will read the articles from the naysayers and, and maybe even going against nuclear, but it's like, look, this is the first of its kind in the US. It's not going to go perfect. Um and I think that's that's something that needs to be said because whenever you're doing stuff for the first time, it's not going to always go the way you think it is. Yeah,
0: you know, this is hard to imagine. But there is enough concrete at that nuclear plant to pave a sidewalk from Georgia to Seattle. A sidewalk. And that that is a long way. And that just shows you how deep in the ground this project is, how high it is, how thick it is. I mean, it was, you know, it was designed to withstand a strike from a 767 jet airliner, uh, you know, crashing directly into it. And you saw what that did to the buildings in New York. Uh, it, it, this, this nuclear vessel will withstand that kind of an impact. That's a lot of concrete. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's it's crazy to think about. I mean, 9,000 workers, 100 projects going on simultaneously. I, I can't even wrap my head around it. And that leads me to the next point. I mean, you'd mentioned earlier about these 9,000 union workers and how they were so pivotal to getting this thing finished. Um, and if we're looking at looking at this from more of a national security perspective, Um, There's a, there's a term that I heard um, last year for the first time, brain drain. Um, And I've actually heard this term when I was in Puerto Rico, walking through the capital of San Juan, Hurricane Maria had come in um, years ago, I think in 2016 or 17, and really wiped out a lot of the buildings, a lot of the condominiums. And I was walking around with some locals and I I had asked, you know, why, why are these things still under construction? We're in 2023, you know, why, why are these still in construction? And they talked about this aspect of brain drain of local talent that does not stay in, in this local talent leaves and goes elsewhere, maybe goes to other U.S. states. But when we talk about brain drain here for Vogel, I mean, you had these 9000 highly skilled workers that just did this project that had never been done. So from a national s- security perspective, we need to keep our hands on these people um, in the future as we continue to build out nuclear. I mean, we we don't really want them to go to other places like China um, we want to keep them in house. So, could you talk about the importance of, of, you know, national security in keeping this local talent, you know, inside of our country?
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly. From a national security perspective, we want America to have superiority in, you know, in key technologies. Right. We don't want China and Russia, just to pick two, you know, to really have a corner on that market where. Other countries that are wanting to deploy certain technologies go to them because when you're building a nuclear reactor and you're, let's say, you know, that a, a country chooses to build a reactor brand X, you know, uh, and to use, uh, you know, American ingenuity technology, then the loyalty that they have is to America because we're going to be servicing it. We're going to provide the part. We're going to provide the know-how. We're going to fix it when it breaks. Well, what happens when they make a deal with Russia or they make a deal with China and now they have some kind of geopolitical obligation to be nice to them. Uh, uh you know or you know or their reactor will be turned off or or not serviced or, or or parts are not provided. So from you know from that standpoint America does need to maintain superiority I mean, you think about Elon Musk and what he's doing with the Dragon and his faith program. We have superiority uh, in America. That's a, you know, that is a perfect example. Now take the labor, the workforce that we had. If no one else builds an AP-1000 in America, what are the workers going to do? I mean, maybe some of them go work on a, a small modular reactor somewhere. I mean, there's, you know. A, you know, states like Tennessee and the Tennessee Valley Authority that says we're going to build 20 GE, GE, Hitachi, you know, reactors by 20, by 2050. Uh, certainly the workforce maybe could transfer part of them, uh, there. I wish, uh, with Jeff Lyash and TVA would consider doing an AP 1000. Uh, I think if they started an AP 1000 next year, Wow, those guys that are here could just move right up one state. That would be very convenient because you think about constructing guys having to move, take their family. You're uprooting. You're uprooting your kids. Your kids are leaving high school. No one, no one's excited about that. Uh, and a lot of these guys make great sacrifices. They live in a camper, uh, you know, during the week and go home on the weekend. So these are workers that are that are making great sacrifices to build these projects. Uh, President Biden in the uh, IRA and the infrastructure bill, there are, as you mentioned earlier about West Virginia, there are, there's incentives for the state to take former, former energy communities, maybe a coal mine community, a coal plant community. And if you transition it to nuclear, you get sexual incentives. So I think that's something that's available. And I've had IBEW on my own radio show multiple times. They are keenly interested in, in transitioning their workforce from fossil plants to nuclear plants. That is, that is their number one goal, uh, on the electrical side is to move from fossil plants to nuclear plants and solar and wind. The, the jobs just aren't technical enough uh, for IBEW, you know, wiremen who are highly trained and making a lot of money, you know, they're not going to be able to transition to solar because solar is just not that complicated. Mm. Uh, Where, as you mentioned earlier, a nuclear plant with a hundred different projects and, you know, uh, you know, 2,500 miles of concrete and all the, you know, high tech welding that's going on and other other stuff that that is where these skilled workers want to go because that's where the the high wages are and that's how they're going to be able to buy that next truck and put that next kid through college and buy that buy that house and have the prosperity that all of us want in our lives. Hmm.
1: Yeah, you brought up West Virginia and I'm glad you did because when I was in college I did a, a lot of studying into, you know, what happened when when coal mining kind of shut down what happened to the workforce, what happened to the communities? Um, and, you know, in Eastern Kentucky and West Virginia, you know, you had these people that had worked in these coal mines and had the skill set. I um, mean, then it was almost stripped away from them. Um, all these years that they had worked, the skill set they had gained. And then all of a sudden, you know, what what do I do? Because now I, I can't work anywhere. So I love that point you made of, you know, can we bring nuclear to these places to provide jobs for these people? I mean, I think I've never thought of that. Um, I've, I've done the done the studying, like I said in college, but. I think that'd be a great solution um, for these people in the workforce. Yeah. I, I, and I'm I'm hopeful
0: if I had to vote tomorrow on building another nuclear plant in Georgia, I would vote no right now because it's uh, the political reality is that you got to you got to let people rest for a little while. I mean, we we just finished unit three. We haven't even finished unit four. And, you know, you you, you don't want. I mean, people don't want me just, you know, just going headlong into the next first of a kind project. Uh, Someone else needs to step up in America and do this. Georgia has done our fair share on this. We've done more than our fair share. We have demonstrated great leadership. Now it's time for someone else to do the same.
1: Hmm. So looking at these other states um, and, and, you know, we've mentioned a few of them, but Georgia's led. You know, we've showed what we can do. We've given the prototype. But there has been legislation that has been passed that I think will help the nuclear industry um, in the form of the Inflation Reduction Act, as we talked about the Biden administration passed this. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on the impact of the IRA on the nuclear industry, um, particularly on its influence on existing nuclear plants. I think that's a a beautiful, a a beautiful incentive. And I mean, even
0: Gavin Newsom in California, they're going to keep that Diablo Canyon project going probably another five years. Wouldn't surprise me if they keep it open a lot longer than that. Uh, they're I think they're saying five years because that's all their people will tolerate at the moment. But given that they want to electrify all these dredge trucks and transit buses and school buses, and they've already got a million EVs out there, um, you simply can't do all that electrification without electricity. <laughs> mm-hmm. You've got to have it, and you you need those nuclear plants. Uh, So keeping existing nuclear open, I wish the Vermont Yankee or the Massachusetts Pilgrim plant had those incentives, uh, you know, and, and that they would have been able to keep those open in New England. Those are those are those are gone. So the incentive is good. The incentives are still not enough for me for SMRs. I want a federal backstop for the first five or first 10 reactors. That are built, or either build them on military bases. Let's have DOD work with DOE and build uh, and build small mod- modular reactors on military bases. Let's get the design perfected where we know for sure that these things cost seven billion or ten billion or whatever, and no more. Um, uh, it, it's just if you're doing something on a first of a kind basis, what commissioner? You know, I think you've got to ask yourself, what commissioner in what state in America right now is willing to risk their political career on an SMR? Uh, Because you are risking your political career when you go off and build something like this. I mean, fortunately, we finished ours. Uh, Those South Carolina commissioners, all seven of them lost their job after they canceled their plan. All seven. So. People don't like to waste money. People want you to be a good steward, and I think you know Georgians. Fortunately, they saw that. Hey, we need. We're going to need this power. We can't close coal plants and not replace it with something. We have got to move forward. And I, I really appreciate Georgians standing behind me to finish finish these two reactors.
1: So, so you mentioned SMRs, these small modular reactors. Some of the research I've done, and actually one of the Early guest on the podcast by the name of John Kutch um, of Thorium Energy Alliance. What he's trying to do is use thorium as a way to power nuclear plants, nuclear reactors. Um, But John, John, what they're trying to do is create these molten salt reactors, Um, these smaller reactors, I think the size of a football field, maybe a little bit larger. um, But we got into a conversation on that type of nuclear reactor, and it led us into talking about Bill Gates um, and Bill Gates' nuclear power company, TerraPower, and you know what, what I found with, with this, and it's, it's super interesting to really dive into to, to this, and I want to ask you about TerraPower in a second, but in 2017, Bill Gates' company, um, TerraPower, they agreed with China National Nuclear Corp. to construct an experimental nuclear reactor near Beijing. But the, the U.S. Department of Energy in October um, had imposed new restrictions on nuclear deals with China. And as we know, trade trade partnership with China, you know. Um, but these restrictions, they aligned with the Trump administration's broader plan to limit China's access to U.S.-made technologies deemed strategically important. Um, so on one end, you can see that, you know, TerraPower, Bill Gates' company, they're trying to create innovative technology working with China from the u s perspective, when Trump was in office, his administration shut it down. I can see both sides of this, um, but I wanted to add that in there before I asked you about Terra Power and what you thought about their reactors, specifically the Natrium power plant in Wyoming. But I guess I would want to hear your thoughts on on Terra Power and you know their their strategy moving forward as far as nuclear goes. You know anybody that works with the Chinese know that
0: they reverse engineer things and steal the technology. Uh, I remember riding the Maglev train from downtown Shanghai to the airport. This is a a train that rides on a magnetic field Hmm. that the Germans built for them with with the caveat that they would get to build these all across China. Well, after the first one was built, all the orders were canceled. Uh, And the Chinese are reverse engineering the Maglev train. And I have no doubt they probably would do that with you know with the terra power reactor i mean the deal that they made with westinghouse is that westinghouse got to build those 2 AP1000s at two different plant sites and then the others would be the chinese version of it so uh, westinghouse had to give up that technology and the chinese took it so you know i can i can see why bill gates and southern company is a investor in terra power i can see why you know they they felt like they could do this in China because China can operate at a great speed because they're a communist government and they don't have to do public hearings, you know, about anything, right? They, they, they decide to build it. They just build it. And so that was probably the fastest way to get the Terra power reactors to the market was building them in China where you don't have to take anything the public does into consideration. Um, And, and I know what President Trump, you know, was was trying to do there in protecting American technology. And certainly that's important, too. But I do think you're going to see a lot of states, because of the incentive Pre- President Biden has put into the IRA and the infrastructure bill, uh, decide to go with small modular reactors. It, they just make sense. They work well with renewable energy. You can ramp them up and down you know, where you can't really do that with an AP-1000. Um, and so I, I think you're going to see, you know, an order book full of these things, uh, as well as the GE G- Atashi uh, reactor, because if we're going to meet any kind of, or even get close to our climate goals in America, we simply have to accelerate the closure of the fossil plants, and you can't do it without nuclear reactor. They are absolutely critical to meeting these kind of climate goals, and so if we're going to do it, we've 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 got to step out and build these reactors.
1: Hmm. So you think in the future you'll see more organizations, more companies like Terra Power start popping up with these smaller modular reactors and trying to you know take them across the U.S. because there's so many incentives in place. Is that is that kind of how you feel like the future will go as far as nuclear? I, I think what may
0: jumpstart this is not. Politicians like me voting on these, but but companies like Dow and others who say, you know what? We've got a facility like the Hyundai plant in Georgia, so 200 megawatts. Basically, it uses 200 megawatts of power, uh, at that, at at the electric car plant. Well, they could, they could, they could have a small modular reactor on site that powered their car plant, right? Uh, and a Hyundai can afford to build it. A Dow Chemical can afford to build it, and they don't really have to do anything other than satisfy their stockholders. Uh, obviously, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is going to be involved, but I think that's one one of the possible routes that we take uh, in order to get to unit number four, unit number five, uh, is having industry build them uh, because they're small enough uh, where they just use that power behind the meter.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, Commissioner Eccles, it's been so nice talking with you and learning about Plant Vogel. It's my dream to go to Plant Vogel one day. Maybe I'll make that happen uh, late this year, maybe uh, next year. But um, I, I do look forward to having you come talk to ACC Atlanta. On um, January 18th, I think is what we have scheduled. We have to figure out where it's gonna be, but um, I look forward to that. Um, and I can't thank you enough for, for coming on today. Thanks a lot. Look forward to joining you at Plant Vogel when you want to go.